Well, let me begin this morning with a, a word of thanks. I can't imagine a uh, first six months of a, of a new pastor going any more enjoyably than it has for me. And I mean that with all sincerity. Your kindness and, and patience has been uh, such a means of undeserved grace. It's been a constant reminder of God's grace through Christ to me, and I'm very thankful uh, for that. And your excitement over the book of Mark has really been uh, infectious for me. There have been more than a few Saturday nights where up late studying, tired, and yet the joy of knowing your desire to hear from the word has energized me and my study, and it certainly has been a joy to study this book with you. And if you can believe it, this morning's message is the 25th message in this series. You might be thinking, well, yeah, we knew that. <laughs> We've been here for all 25 of them. Uh, but it seems to have gone uh, by quite quickly for me, and it's been a joy uh, for me, and as I hope and trust it's been for you. We will pause this series after today until the new year. Next week, uh, Evan Took will occupy the pulpit here, and then on Christmas, we will have a Christmas message. So we will pick up Mark chapter 9 in 2017. I imagine that for all of us at some point, uh, we've either been voluntold or signed up for something that uh, once we got into the actual something, whatever it is that we signed up for, we make this statement, I have bit off more than I can chew. This was an unexpected amount of work. I didn't expect things to go as it has gone. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. This morning, Peter and his disciples come to this understanding in our text in Mark 8, 31 through 9, 1, they come to realize the central truth that true followers of the true Messiah must give all as he did for us. That true followers of the true Messiah must give all as he did for us. We're going to look at this passage in, in really two points. You'll find the first point in 31 through 33, and then we'll look at the second half of the passage there, 31, 34 through 9, 1. Look with me at verse 31 through 33. We see the true nature of Messiahship, the true nature of Messiahship. We noted last week that Peter, Christ, is on this road with the disciples, and as he makes this journey, he sort of canvases them. Hey, this is the scuttlebutt around town. What are, you, what are you hearing? They tell him. Now, what do you say? Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. And we noted that he's correct. But then we also noted that it wasn't just the fact that he was correct. It was a, a blessing from God that he knew this. But then there's this sort of odd charge in verse 30. Don't tell anyone what you know. And it seems a bit odd that he would say so. And yet we find explanation for why Christ charges them in verse 30 as we look at 31 through 33. Because they understood the confession of Christ as the Messiah, but they didn't understand the profession. I'll explain more in just a minute. We would note that the confession of Christ here in verse 29 as the Messiah by Peter, is in itself insufficient to establish Christian faith because there must be a response to the Messiah. 
We uh, follow a very simple liturgy. We look at God and man and Christ response. That's the, in, in, a, in a little four-point bulletin, that's the gospel. Who is God? What is he? What has he done? Now, who are we in relation to that God? The problem that arises because of our sin in relation to a holy God. Now we see the beauty of Christ, what he's done, but then we also see the demands of Christ. In a way, Peter got who we are and who Christ is, and that's about as far as he got. Verse 31. They're unclear of the ramifications of what Messiahship actually looks like, what it means to be the Son of Man. And we notice the centrality again of Christ's ministry. He began to teach them. And he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, killed, and after three days rise again. And that word, Son of Man, those three words there, that title of Christ is the third time it's been used in the Gospel of Mark. And they may have, the disciples, reckoned back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where there's this prophecy of the king, the son of man, that is to come and rule over nations. And so I sort of imagine the disciples confess Christ. They get this odd look on their face. I thought we got A plus in the test, right? You're the Messiah, I can't tell anybody about that. And he begins to teach them the son of man. Oh, that sounds good. That's exactly what I want to hear. I've got it right. Check, check. That's Messiah, right? You're the son of man. You're that guy that we've been told all the way back in Daniel is going to come and roll over the Romans. Yes. What is this? Must, this, this word of necessity, must suffer many things? Must be rejected, must be killed, must rise again. Go with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 are reflected in this passage in Mark 8 this morning. And I want, I want, I want to just note Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and, and sort of the same mentality we have when we sign up for something and it's a little more involved than we previously anticipate. You could see how they are thinking Daniel and maybe even Isaiah here in 52 and 53 and what they're thinking and yet not what they're seeing. Verse 13 of Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Yes, that's the Messiah I want. High and lifted up. And then they sort of skipped 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, behind, beyond human resemblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And then verse 15, this is what I want. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that, that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then they forgot again. For he grew up before him like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. They don't get the full meaning of the gospel. In fact, they don't even understand the hope of the gospel, which is the resurrection. If you look at Mark 9, verse 10, so that they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant. I mean, the layers of confusion upon the behalf of the disciples is stark here. Wait a minute, I like this Messiah thing. What do you mean? Suffer, rejected, killed, rise again? And yet for us as believers who have the full canon of Scripture, this three days and rise again is what changes everything. It is our hope that in following death, he lives, and therefore after our death, we live. There is that song, uh, great hymn of the faith, you may have heard it. It is not death to die, to leave this world behind. And notice he speaks plainly to them. Most of the time he speaks in parables, but he speaks very plainly and he gives the very simplicity of the gospel. It's not not, uh, hard to understand here. And in fact, it's so plain that Peter brings about an ill-advised rebuke. You sort of kind of get the picture. Put his arm around Christ. Pull him over the side. Hey, listen. Listen. I think you've got it all wrong. We signed up for for Messiah and King. We didn't sign up for denial, death, rebuke. And he rebukes Christ. And the disciples are evidently in agreement with whatever Peter's sort of saying. Peter's sort of just this spokesman, right? Sort of like, okay, listen, there's a hard word. We need to Kind of bring him down. Peter, your turn. So Peter goes over and Christ then turns, as you see there, and he sees the disciples and he rebukes Peter and he, and he rebukes him in a very strong way. And, and in that rebuke is rebuking the disciples as well. Get behind me, Satan. Now we would note to hear that, that Peter isn't Satan. And I think, it's, I think it's, it's unique to see the testimony here because because this, Mark's gospel is the narrative of Peter. And actually, it's, it's a really humbling narrative here. If I was writing this book, this is the part that I leave out. I don't want people, I don't want people to know what I said that merited such a strong response from Christ. But, but let's consider Peter's position because we're in many ways in the same boat. Messiahs don't die and get killed. Peter knows the Hollywood storybook ending as much as as we do. The good guys aren't supposed to die. That's not how it works. No matter what the situation is, they always come out at the end. That's not how messiahs do it. They don't think of, of saving. Messiahs don't save by death, denial, and despair. See, Peter didn't get the radical nature of the Messiah of the gospel and the corresponding implications for his own life any more than you and I get most of the time. Peter gets this rebuke of get behind me, Satan. Growing up, 
my younger brother Cade didn't start talking till after two. And I, if you've met my brother, he hasn't stopped talking since two. But he didn't talk till after two. And so we have video, funny little home videos of him walking around the house going, ah. And that was his way of communicating what he wanted. He'd point and kind of say, ah. And my parents, can you believe it, would say that I would then do the talking for him. I would say, well, this is what he wants and that's what he wants. And unfortunately, that didn't stop as he got older. My dad asked, would ask Cade a question and I would respond and my dad would look at me and say, thank you, Cade. And I got the message as much as you just got the message that he wasn't communicating to me as Cade. He was communicating, you're out of line. I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to your brother. Christ, in similar fashion, is doing the same thing here. Get behind me, Satan. You're out of line, Peter. Your thinking is mimicking the thinking of Satan. And it's, it's just this continuation of this theme in Scripture, in Mark, where we have this exaltation of who Christ is, and then we have this temptation away from that. You think all the way back to Mark chapter 1, where Christ is baptized, and we know, according to Matthew 3, that Christ descend, that the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and God from heaven, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son followed immediately after by the temptation in the wilderness. And that's exactly what's happening here. You are the Christ. And yet your thinking is like the enemies. Your thinking is not as man thinks, as not as God thinks. Your thinking is like that of man. And this highlights for us the importance of thinking biblically. In fact, this highlights for us the importance of thinking biblically about suffering about imitating Christ in that death and denial and rejection. Because if we aren't thinking God-like thoughts about the difficulties of this life as they pertain to the gospel, we aren't thinking God-like thoughts. We're thinking sinful man thoughts. And yet notice, for us fathers this morning, Peter, Peter fails the class here, doesn't he? And yet he doesn't, God... Christ doesn't come in with this just incredible blow. He rebukes him, but then he shows his love by explaining why he got it wrong and what the implications look like. Mark, in many ways, trying to communicate to the original readers that the Messiah is the king of heaven, not of the nation of Israel, and as such requires heavenly obedience That's what Christ is going to explain, that heavenly obedience is our profession. And what I mean by profession is the way that the dictionary uses that word. It's the job description. That leads us to point number two. We look at verses 34 through 9-1. The profession of the Christian. The profession of the Christian. We looked at verse 31 through 33, the true nature of Messiahship. But now, if you will, the job description of the Christian. What what does it mean to follow that Messiah? Notice there, he turns to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. This crowd is representing all believers. It's, It's as if Christ is saying, this message that I'm about to tell you of what it means to follow the Christ is not just for the the spiritual religious leaders, the disciples, the apostles. It's not just for the pastors or the elders or the deacons. It's for anyone who names the name of Christ and follows after him. 
And it's the hard stuff that he has to tell us. It's the hard stuff he tells the disciples and the crowd. And in so doing, he tells us this morning. Look what he says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you remember last week, I read off a list of false views of Christ. And if our view of Jesus is false, and let's just take the Christmas season as an example, as this baby meek and mild, this Western Christmas baby Jesus, then this message is going to sound all that more radical. Let him who would follow me, let him who would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. William Lane in his In his book, The Gospel of Mark says, Jesus stipulated that those who wish to follow him must be prepared to shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for self to a reckless abandon to the will of God. And just think about that for a moment. If this earth's center of gravity shifted just that much, the whole thing would fall into chaos. And that's exactly what's happening here. There's a radical shift that has to take place between someone who confesses and the way that profession, the way that job description mirrors that confession. It's going to wreck the former understanding of life. Because what he's saying here when he's speaking of taking him to the cross is following Christ in such a way that the world knows you aren't coming back. If that day, if, if, if someone was to take up their cross, that cross beam, it was to put that cross beam on their shoulders and they were to walk down that road to their death, they are simply proclaiming to everyone seeing them, I'm marching to death, I'm not coming back. Death lies before me. That's what he's saying. Death lies before the person who follows Christ. It, we, we think of this Jesus as, ah, we will sit with him in glory. If we're going to sit with him in glory, then surely we get a few glorious moments here. It should be easy peasy. That's not what he's saying. It seems obvious, but we'll note it anyway. Christ isn't suggesting that we sort of go back and get out of wood cross. Tom can fashion one for everybody. David Thompson nails one together and we all lay it on our backs and we march down Main Street. That's not what he's saying at all. And, and, and get it, he's, he's not implying that the suffering of this world or the difficulties in our life is the cross as well. He's not saying the difficulties that you have in your relationships or the difficulties that you're having with your marriage or your finances or your what, whatever it is. He's not saying that's your cross. You've probably heard uh, someone say the phrase maybe in referring to something difficulty, diff- some difficulty that's going on in their lives. Yeah, you know, it's just the cross I've been called to bear. No, it's not. Not necessarily. The cross that we bear are the burdens and the difficulties when they come as a result of our following Christ. Not simply because we live in a fallen world subject to sin, disease, illness, and the consequences of those things. 
Some of those things that we experience in the life isn't the cross that we're bearing. And we actually have a skewed view of the gospel when we say, yeah, that's the cross. No, that's not the cross. That's part of the difficulties of this side of life. The cross is that which those burdens, those difficulties that come when we're following Christ, when we're imitating Christ. And look at the message that Christ has for us. Deny yourself, lose your life, shame now, honor later. That's what he's saying, right? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. You can be, you can be shamed now and have honor later. Or the, the flip side of it. You can deny him, you can keep your life, you can have honor now, and shame later. God-man-Christ response, the two weakest aspects of the, of the gospel testimony are so often those two bookends, God and response. And if we just focus on the middle of man and Christ, this is gonna lead us to a wrong view of Jesus And if I can be so bold, let me suggest that I wonder if our wrong view of Jesus is often what makes suffering in this life so much more difficult and even unbearable at times. Now, I'm not seeking to to minimize anyone's suffering, on the contrary, but I am suggesting that if we aren't careful and just take the, the good and the easy thoughts of Jesus as the Messiah and we aren't getting the full picture of the gospel, the calling of the gospel, the profession of the gospel, it's a bit like an unexpected recovery from surgery. I remember uh, now 10 years ago getting surgery on my knee. And my recovery was very discouraging. In part because the, 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 the doctor had the audacity to say, in three days, you're gonna be up and walking around. And three weeks later, I'm still flat on my back in Nanny Ro- on Nanny Rose's couch in a ton of pain. It's, it's that expectation that made it that much more difficult. We expect that if we have Christ, it shouldn't be this hard. But it is this hard. And our expectation should be, and our expectation that it should be less difficult makes it all that much more painful. Listen to me, I, I think there's, there's a, a huge aspect this morning in this passage of the grace of the gospel and that, that grace is understanding that our suffering in like manner and in imitation to Christ is going to be hard but it's a hard road that's been paved by our king. Imagine, no, you don't have to imagine, just, just, just think of others that you know that are going through suffering, that don't know Christ and observe what it's like to walk down a foreign road of suffering with no hope that anyone's been down this path before. And yet that's not us as believers. The path of suffering isn't just a path Christ has walked before us. It's the path, we've got to understand, it's the path that he's leading us down and it's the fact that he has paved as the road, the intended road, the best road for us to travel. That's why Psalm 23 verse four has got to be understood as the good shepherd leading us through the dark valleys. 
and any other road to travel on this life isn't the road that Jesus walked. In fact, do you see it? It's when we realize that this path of suffering is, the, is actually the king's highway that we really begin to see the magnitude of verses like Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Our king isn't some, some spoiled child who was raised in a palace and had no clue about the difficulties of the common man. No, he's, he's actually the king, according to Isaiah 52, that was marred beyond human resemblance. You think your suffering's bad? It was crushed, it crushed him beyond that which is able to be recognizable as human being. He suffered at the hands of cruel men. And in an even greater way, he suffered under the full and mighty wrath of God that we wouldn't have to be crushed beyond human resemblance. And that's the only thing that keeps us from being crushed beyond human resemblance is the fact that he took that wrath for us. And therefore, he gets it. He gets suffering. He understands suffering. He intercedes for us in our difficulties because he's taken all of that for our sake. Notice some application in this section. We're called to deny ourselves. Husbands, Ephesians 5, tells you that in like manner as Christ denied himself, denied himself and took upon himself death for his bride, us the church, we are to deny ourselves. So how can we, what things do we need to be denying for the sake of our wife and families? that may tend to be more things that we desire for our own little kingdom and yet isn't the best for the family? What cross in application has he called you to bear and are you submitting to it? Is the gospel worth dying for to you? I know we would die for Jesus, but are we willing to die for the message, the campaign slogan of the kingdom by which he rules and reigns? The gospel, that's what it's saying here. For what does that profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Not just, that's what he's highlighting here, not just confessing me as Messiah, but also the job description that comes with that. The truth of the response to the Messiah. Are you ashamed of Christ? Are you ashamed of his teaching? That one's humbling for me. I can stand up here and preach, enjoy it immensely, but then yesterday in the coffee shop when someone makes a remark that I know is crude and not God-glorifying, I confess the thought went through my mind, he won't have any clue if I tell him the truth about what he just said. I was ashamed of the teaching of Christ. suffering for Christ. We're being called to make visible Christ's suffering, Paul tells us, to fill up what is lacking. You can't see the physical suffering of Christ, and yet that is what is one of the starkest pictures of the gospel. In the testimony to the world is that when we suffer, we do so with great hope and joy. 
our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, our motives don't shift because of the difficulties. In fact, instead of weeping, we rejoice in the midst of our weeping. This whole passage highlights extreme, the extreme paradox of the Christian faith. Blessed are the persecuted. Romans 8, 17, we must suffer as he suffered in order that we might be glorified with him. The call, the response of the gospel is, is in many ways to mimic what Christ has done for us, to imitate it. We don't hang upon a cross. We don't take upon ourselves the sins of the world, but we do suffer as he suffered. And in fact, Romans tells us that we must in order we might be glorified with him. Parents, how, how are you preparing your children for this? Don't teach your children that following Jesus is going to be easy. In fact, teach them that in their lifetime, it's more, like, it's more likely that they're going to die for Jesus. Notice Christ isn't devaluing life here. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What about you this morning? Do you value your life? You should. It's been created by God. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Life is important, but eternal life is eternally important. That's what he's saying here. It's not just the confession, but it's embracing the profession, the job description of the, of the, of the confession that counts. That is, that is the true follower of Christ. And what a joy. Notice how he, he moves this passage to hope. What a joy to know that by his grace, when he returns, and notice he returns as a judge, no less, that if our profession, our job description has matched our confession, by his grace, he will find joy in us. He will rejoice in us as he even does now. And notice he's going to return in his father's glory. The glory of God is the reason behind everything we do. It was the driving force for Christ. It should be the driving force for us. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful that we don't approach telling others about Christ for its attributes to the neglect of its perceived, notice I said perceived, negatives. We're telling people about the positives that potentially could come to the detriment of the perceived negatives. They aren't, but they're perceived that way. It's because we oftentimes don't get the gospel any more than Peter and the disciples got the gospel. We often speak of the gospel like a a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. Here's what it can do for you. Here's the perk and the plus, the bell, the whistle. To diminish the call of the gospel is to diminish the example of the king we claim to follow. To reject suffering and the rejection and death is to reject the Christ who makes these demands. And I submit to you, I think that the world is longing for an authentic message. Something that actually means something other than just sort of an add-on. It's like that vacuum cleaner. If you pay for this, you get this little extra perk here. Yeah, if you add that much more, you get this little bell and this. But what is it really going to do for me? It's going to radically change your life. It's going to shift your center of gravity from you to something far greater. 
him. Tell me more. I'm interested. Major Harold William Tillman was an English mountaineer and explorer. He lived from 1898 to 1977, and he was renowned for his Himalayan climbs and sailing voyages. And in 1961, he took a sea voyage of great peril. And before sailing, he had had two men sign up, and he needed three more. So he put an advertisement in the London Times. Hands wanted for long voyage in small boat. No pay, no prospects, not much pleasure. Close quote. And he got 20 replies, some of them serious, and he got the three men that he needed, and none of them had any experience in sailing small boats except one who hadn't sailed, he just played the double bass on the Queen Mary 51 times as he sailed across the Atlantic. I find it humorous he chose that type of person. Why did these men respond? Because they wanted something that actually meant something. And I submit to you that by the grace of God is that we will proclaim a full gospel that includes the response. Those that do respond Will be, there will be far less false conversions and there will be many that will be much more equipped for the true call of the gospel. Look with me at the hope found in verse 1 of chapter 9. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they've seen the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In the context of this passage, he's just speaking about the transfiguration which is going to happen in just a few days, six in fact. And it's the transfiguration by which Peter speaks of in 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What is the hope for us? The hope is that he is the Christ. He is the one who is radiantly glorious. He is coming again. He did suffer for you. He was rejected. He was killed. And he rose again for the glory of the Father and out of love for you. And it was evidenced. It was witnessed by men. And it was noted for us. And if by God's grace we see, maybe for you the first time this morning, the wonder of Christ taking the crushing wrath of God on your behalf and then the call to respond in following the King of kings and Lord of lords, then you will see a work of transformation. You will see a shift, a, a gravitational shift in your life from you to God that is unable to be explained by human thinking. And you will be able to give testimony as Peter did of the glory of Christ and the work of change that it has wrought. This message is the response aspect of the gospel that is demanded by God because of Christ. Because Christ is well worth the response. He is king, the perfect king. 
and loyalty and allegiance to the king is required. True followers of the true Messiah must give all as he did for us. What glory it is to know that Christ has given us everything. His whole life, perfect, laid down for us. And then on top of that, grace upon love, upon mercy, upon faithfulness to us. Brothers and sisters, will we not respond in like manner and give all to him? It is well worth it. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to know and yet humbling to see that the true Messiah has given all for us. Forgive us, Father, when we don't recognize that following the true Messiah demands that we give all to him. Father, I don't know the thinking and plans, lives, heart attitudes of the people in this room to the depth that you do. So I'm praying that, Father, your Holy Spirit would, would prick our consciences individually, helping us Start with me, Father, to understand where we are not laying it all down for Christ's sake and the gospel. Where I have mistakenly understood the call, the profession of Christ and in so doing have rejected the full nature of Christ. Father, help us to see past the difficulty of rejection and denial and even death. Denying ourselves, laying down our own desires. It all seems too hard. So help us, Father. Give us abundant grace. Because the truth is, Father, as we repent and take up your cross and follow after you and do it your way that the ramifications the blessings are far beyond any human measure the joy the delight the life then lived it's beyond we can beyond what we could ever ask or think Father, your life is worth living for because it's worth dying for. May we be those who count the cost. May we be those, Father, in this season of the year and of 2017 as it approaches that are those who deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. We thank you, Father, that you denied yourself. Your son denied your hip, himself, took up his cross in obedience for us. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.